this morning, I'm, I'm going to look at one final idea as we close out our study uh, on, on Jonah. Uh, if you have a Bible, Acts chapter 10 is we're gonna, where we're going to be. We're going to cover some ground this morning. But before we do, I want to take you on a journey from one capital city to another. From Madison, Wisconsin in 2023 to the booming metropolis of Des Moines, Iowa in 2018, right? You guys know it. It's got two tall buildings. It's incredible. Okay, um, uh, I was on uh, staff at a church plant in our network of churches. Docs is a part of a family of churches called the Salt Network. And uh, I was on staff with our church there in the city of Des Moines, Cottage Grove. And one summer we decided that it'd be a great idea, and it was great for our community, uh, to do a three-on-three basketball tournament, kind of for the community. Uh, We took over a park. It was incredible. We rented out some streets to put up, like, different hoops. Got real creative about creating courts, if you will, um, to play on. And uh, I, um, I am built for many things, and basketball is not on that list. It is just, it just is not. But everyone on our staff was doing it, so I decided I'd kind of join in along with them and, and hoop up for a little bit. I, 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 there was this moment where we were around this, the main court, kind of the middle of the park. About probably 100, 150 of us were in this tournament, and um, this guy, I don't know his name, I never saw him again, but, which makes sense after this. Uh, he like pulls up for a jumper like right outside the key, just like looks all pretty with it, like lets it go, and then as if like blocking out the sun, just someone comes and just smacks the ball. I mean, it's to the point where over like, like 100, imagine 150 people going like, Ugh, like all at once, just collectively watching it and grimacing. Uh, just making that noise. It was not the, the best moment for him. And for me, in the back of my head, I'm thinking, okay, my match is in a little bit. Like, couldn't be me. Not a chance, right? Like, that's for you. Not going to happen to me. Fifteen minutes later, um, we're on a street, and uh, I do like a little one of these, you know, like, a, like, a, like one of those guys. And um, I, right, you know, okay, one of those, right, Chase, you go, okay, I do one of those, and uh, I, I, I do a little move past somebody, and I go for a layup, and this is just, this was a bad decision. I did one of the layups where you, like, finger roll it a little bit, because for some reason during a three-on-three tournament in the first match when nobody's watching, like, I wanted it to look pretty. That was dumb, um, and, and uh, this guy comes from behind me and just swats the ball literally into a busy street. Like, it was with so much force that, like, it, it got in front of cars. Like, it was just... It was a mess, and, and, and I remember in that moment, there's a video of it. Uh, my friend Chase did actually take a video of this. It's a terrible video. Come find me, and I'll show it to you. Uh, but he slowed it down and put the Sarah McLaughlin in the arms of the angel song behind it. It's just, and it says, R.I.P. Rudy's game. It made, it made the rounds on the social media for a little bit, and I experienced deep emotional shame. Uh, it was great. So I um, never played basketball again. And no, I, I, um, I, I think about that moment because I, I remember like looking at that guy and thinking, couldn't be me. 15 minutes later, like realized a little closer to actually being me th- than I thought that it was. And, and maybe you don't have as visceral an experience of that, um, but, but you probably have friends or family or coworkers or classmates that you've watched them do something and you're like, couldn't be me. Nope, nah, I'm not going to do that at all. And then 15 minutes or five hours or five days or 15 days later, you realize you're doing the exact same thing. Couldn't be me has a tendency to turn into, maybe it is, a little quicker than we're comfortable with sometimes. You may have had a similar experience with that as we've been going through Jonah. 
Now let me just set the scene here real quick. Jonah is sent by God to be a missionary, which to be clear is the role of every single breathing Christian follower of Jesus. Your geographical location does not dictate whether you're a missionary or not. If you follow Jesus, let's just set the bar, you are a missionary. To quote uh, Charles Spurgeon, this will be up on the screen, he says that if Jesus is precious to you, you will not be able to keep your good news to yourself. You will be whispering it into your child's ear. You'll be telling it to your husband. You'll be earnestly imparting it to your friend. Without the charms of eloquence, you will be more than eloquent. Your heart will speak and your eyes will flash as you talk of his sweet love for every Christian is here is either a missionary or an imposter. Recollect that. You either try to spread abroad the kingdom of Christ or you do not love him at all. It cannot be that there is a high appreciation of Jesus and a totally silent tongue about him. That man that says, I believe in Jesus, but does not think enough of Jesus to ever tell another person about him by mouth or pen or tract is an imposter. So when you, when you think of yourself in relation to being a missionary, sharing the gospel with those around you, you may have had moments as we've gone through the story of Jonah where you've thought, oh, I'm, I might be like him. Maybe that is me. Jonah resists God. He flees from the place that God has sent him. He's avoiding of the people that he's sent to in Nineveh and ultimately is frustrated with God for being merciful to a people that he didn't think deserved it. I don't know a single Christian who would articulate wanting that, but sometimes when you read Jonah, couldn't be me, turns into maybe it is a little quicker than we'd like to. I believe you that you don't want to be like that, but sometimes, if we're honest, we just find that we are. And this morning... I want to make one thing perfectly clear through our text. The way that Jonah went to Nineveh does not have to be the way that you go to your city, your campus, your office, your family. Doxo, we can actually go better than Jonah. I'm not the dude to help you with your layup, but I think we can open up the text. And I want to show you this reality from a moment in the life of Peter that has striking similarities to the story of Jonah. If you've been looking at Jonah and thinking, maybe I'm more like him than I thought, then today I want you to see through the scripture that you do not have to be him. You can go better than Jonah, and I got Bible for it. Acts chapter 10, we're going to open it up and look at this moment in the life of Peter. Now I did say this, we are going to do some work. We're going to do all of Acts 10 and half of Acts 11. So we're going to summarize some of this. But from the rip, I want you to notice something as we hop into the text. Something that forms a massive distinction between Jonah and Peter. Something that candidly could revolutionize the way that you see yourself as you go on mission. And it's this, Peter has a compassion for those who are far from God that Jonah lacked. Note takers, top of the page. Peter has a compassion for those who are far from God that Jonah lacked. Just very briefly on compassion. In our day, this seems to have become something of a Play-Doh word. Anyone can pick it up, form it into whatever they want, whatever serves their purposes, and just call it compassion. There is much that is called compassion that could also be called spineless passivity. And as a result, compassion gets a reputation of being flimsy, of being soft, of being abstract, of ultimately being something other than what it is. Think about it like this. If you were to go to a doctor and she was to find out that you have cancer, the compassionate thing for that doctor to do is not to ignore the fact that you have cancer. 
You might walk out of that doctor's office with a sense of everything about me is okay, but the reality is that something inside of you is threatening your life. That doctor would trade their short-term comfort for your long-term pain. That's spineless passivity. I thank God for the incredible MDs and DOs in our city that are not like that, but it would not be compassionate of a doctor to withhold that truth from you, just as it would not be compassionate for that doctor to say, you have cancer, that's a bummer, figure it out and stay away from me. You're going to mess with my stats. Like that would be, that would be compassionless. That would be careless dehumanization. Compassion is neither spineless passivity nor careless dehumanization. Compassion is actually much larger than this. Compassion takes grit. It takes strength. It takes tenacity. It takes couth. It takes virtue. It takes maturity. It takes tears. It takes willingness. Sometimes it takes sacrifice. You see, compassion is this combination of conviction, courage, and care. Conviction that says, I must do something. Courage that says, I will do something, and care that says, this is for them, not for me. I'm not going to do something compassionate so that I feel better about myself. Compassion is outward facing. Compassion on mission, true compassion, looks at the people who are around us that have great and significant need, and looks at those around us that have the cancer of sin in their soul, and says, I must and will do something for the sake of these people around me. It may cost me. I may be uncomfortable at times. They may even be uncomfortable at times, but my compassion for them in light of the gospel must move me toward them. That's the real compassion that is lacking in the life of Jonah. That's what we see on display in the life of Peter. So we're going to walk through four movements, Acts 10 and 11. All that was time for you to find that in the Bible, by the way. Um, But you'll notice that these chapters actually have distinct similarities to the story of Jonah and after that, we'll jump into some granular elements of how to, what this compassion kind of on the ground could look like in, in your life. But let's hop right in. Uh, the word doesn't do the work. The work won't get done. So Acts chapter 10, I'm going to summarize a lot of this. The first movement, you could title it like this. God speaks to a man in Joppa. Acts 10 opens up with a man named Cornelius, who is a centurion of what is called the Italian cohort. This is not the guy in Joppa. He's, he's in a different area. He's called a devout man, a generous. He's known for praying to God. Not a bad moniker, by the way, for you to have in the Bible. How do we know, what do we know about Cornelius? Cornelius prayed. Pretty good title for him. Um, here's what's interesting. This man is not Jewish. I may not be a big deal to you. It was a massive deal for the people of this day in this text. He's what was called a God-fearer, a Gentile, non-Jewish individual who worshiped God, much like, by the way, many of us in this room. So this man would have been seen as outside of the people of God. And one day while he was praying, God sends an angel to Cornelius and tells Cornelius that he's been heard in his prayers and that he's to send men to go get Peter from Joppa. Now, if the word Joppa rings any bells in your head, it's because it's supposed to. Joppa is the same town that Jonah was in when the Lord spoke to him and told him in Jonah chapter 1 to go to Nineveh. So God speaks to Cornelius, but then he also speaks to Peter. 
The next day, the scene switches to Peter and Joppa, who's gone up on his housetop to pray. Right about noon, he's praying, and then God speaks to, to Peter in Acts 10, verses 11 through 16. He saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. There on it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or un." clean. That was a cultural value that he had as a Jewish man, that he would not eat these particular animals because they were common and unclean. And the voice said to him for a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. And this happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once into heaven. Really interesting stuff here. This is the most work we'll do, and then we'll kind of move a little quicker through this. God shows Peter animals that it would have been unclean for him to eat as a Jewish man. Peter resists and says something as hilarious as it is inappropriate. No, Lord. <laughs> you can't do that because it's either no and he's not Lord or you can't say no because he, he is Lord. Um, Peter's experiencing a conflict around what he's seeing and around what God is saying to him. So God resolves the conflict for him. He says, what I call clean, you don't call common. This is important in light of what is about to happen. There's about to be a knock on the door where Peter is staying. Men are about to bring him to Cornelius, who was a Gentile, a person who would have been considered unclean, someone he would have been taught to keep a distance from since he was very young in his culture. God is about to send Peter to a people that he would have thought of as common and unclean. But if God calls them clean, then Peter could not call them common. Peter doesn't get that yet, but he will. Just for this moment, God has spoken to Peter while he was in Joppa in prayer to prepare him to go. So movement one of our text in Acts 10, God speaks to a man in Joppa. Movement number two, a man is brought to a foreign people. As this is happening, three men come to the door who were sent by Cornelius the day before. And the pieces start to kind of come together for Peter. Acts chapter 10 verses 19 through 22. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What's the reason for you coming? Just imagine, just imagine, like you get a knock on the door and you open the door and it's like, hey, I'm the person that you're looking for. What's the reason for you coming? And they say this, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear what you have to say. (laughs) Slam, right? I mean, like that's a odd thing, but God has spoken to Peter. Peter knows that this is coming. God has spoken to Cornelius and to Peter, and now Peter is to go with these men to the house of Cornelius. So Peter, the next day, leaves Joppa to go to the home of this man who is a Gentile. Then we see, a little bit later, Peter really starting to put it together when he arrives. And in verses 28 and 29, he says to this group of people that are in the house of Cornelius, he says, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew like me to associate with or visit anyone of another nation like you, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So what I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why have you sent for me? And Cornelius explains exactly what happened and ends by saying, Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all you've been commanded by the Lord. This is just a really funny moment where Peter's like, Why are you here? And Cornelius is like, Because you're supposed to tell us something. (laughs) 
it's, it's this incredible moment in the scripture um, of a man being brought to a foreign people in movement three. That man preaches and people respond. Peter starts to preach then. He speaks about the life of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the good that Jesus did in healing and delivering. He talks about the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. And in verse 43, he ends by saying how everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And while Peter is preaching, the Spirit of God begins to move among the people and they begin to respond outwardly to the preaching of the gospel, which amazes the Jewish men and women who had accompanied Peter because they were convinced This couldn't happen for the Gentiles, only for the Jews. And in light of this, verses 47 and 48, Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who've received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And Peter commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Peter is so sure upon hearing and receiving the gospel that they have come to Christ, been forgiven, and become a part of the redeemed family of God through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that he commands them to be baptized. A public proclamation that they've been buried with Christ in his death and have new life in Christ through his resurrection. That they are now not two separate people from two separate nations, but one family because of the finished work of Jesus. That the blood of Jesus has joined these two separate people together as one. A man preaches. People respond. Which brings us to movement four. The work of God among the people is met with resistance. Peter comes back to Jerusalem. He's criticized for baptizing these Gentiles. He's criticized because the circumcision party, group of people that believed that only the Jewish people could come to Christ, that only they could be baptized, are mad that he has done this for Gentiles. They criticize him. They come against him. They resist him. And Peter, in response, just tells a story. Just testifies to what happened, top to bottom. And the interaction ends like this in verse 8, 17 and 18 in Acts 11. Peter said, If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life, which is an amazing verse for anyone in this room who is not ethnically Jewish. (laughs) That means that we have been received and are able to be granted repentance that leads to life. For God's heart is not for one people, but for all peoples. As the story ends, it's it's a clear moment showing that God is not partial to one nation or ethnicity over another, so neither should we have any tolerance within our community for ethnic supremacy or cultural division but rather that he has made a way for us all to be joined as one to him through the blood of Jesus, his death, and his resurrection. It's an incredible story, the missionary work of God through Peter. There's four movements to this story that you see. God speaks to a man in Joppa. That man is brought to a foreign people. That man preaches and the people respond. The work of God among the people is met with resistance. And these are the same four movements that we actually find in the story of Jonah. God speaks to a man in Joppa. That man is brought to a foreign people by fish, not by people. That man preaches. The people respond. The work of God among the people is met with resistance. Except where Jonah, where Peter was met with resistance from the church, Jonah is met with resistance from within himself. They're they're so similar, and yet they're so different. And there's this big difference in the middle. It's because Peter has a compassion for those who are far from God that Jonah 
lacked. And it's not just for the original hearers, it's for us. While Peter's life certainly shows that he's not perfect, he is a person like we are. His model is given to us to see the heart of God for all people and to follow as we ourselves are sent out with the gospel, to share the the gospel as a follower of Jesus. If we're going to go better than Jonah, then we need to go with the compassion for people who are far from God. What I want to do is I want to spend uh, some of the rest of our time looking at three differences between Jonah and Peter and really let those just be a barometer for us. I'm not, I want to challenge you without condemning you. I want to just give you some clear categories of self-examination for you to have just an honest moment with yourself or maybe with the person that you came with. Am I more like Jonah or am I more like Peter? I'll look at three categories. I'll give you two words and then I'll take my seat. Shift number one that would help you to go better than Jonah would be this. It's a shift from being resistant to being responsive. You see, when Jonah is sent to preach to the Ninevites, his initial reaction is resistance. God speaks, Jonah runs, gets in the ships, pays a fare, tries to get the furthest possible place away. And, And all of this, we find, he simply did because he did not want the Ninevites to have an opportunity to repent and come to God. He's resistant to the words of God, or Peter is responsive. Now, interestingly, Peter's first response is, no, Lord, which we addressed. That's inappropriate and kind of hilarious. But after the Spirit tells him these men were coming to take him, that he should go with them, Peter does it. He's responsive, obediently responsive to the Word of God as it comes to him. Here's the first shift from Jonah to Peter we need to look at in our own lives. Are we resistant to the Word of God or are we responsive to it? This is one of the clearest marks of spiritual maturity as you walk with Jesus that you could use to measure your growth, as you encounter the Word of God through the Scriptures taught, read, studied, meditated on, memorized, do you resist them or do you respond to them? Just taking some of the words of Jesus, some of the last that he said in the Gospel of Matthew. You can see this in all the Gospels. You can see this in Acts where he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the Word of God coming to us today through the recorded words of Jesus. So as we read this, as we hear this, if we were to assess this in our own lives, would the way that we live reveal that we are resistant to these words of Jesus or responsive to them? Does our maturity in the faith bend towards responding with action or resisting with inaction? See, resistance in Jonah is first seen in his spineless passivity trying to escape, and then it's seen in his careless dehumanization of the people with a lackadaisical four-word sermon. His resistance is evidence in his lack of compassion, but Peter instead responds. He responds to the Word of God with conviction and courage and care, with ultimately compassion, and there's a categorical difference here. You can see how the way that they respond to God actually shapes the way that they treat people. You look at how Jonah resisted God and it comes through in the way that he saw and treated the Ninevites. You see how Peter responds to God and it comes through in the way that he sees and treats those in the house of Cornelius. We resist the word of God as it comes to us. Are we responsive to it? This first shift will help us go better than Jonah. The second shift will as well. From responsive, from resistant to responsive, and then from fleeing to faithful. 
See, Jonah flees because his bias against the Ninevites drives him to not want to preach to them. Peter is faithful to go, even though he has a cultural reason not to go to the Gentiles. Here's the second shift as it takes place. When we are presented with a person or a people to share the gospel with, to go towards, to move towards, do we flee from that opportunity or are we faithful to be in that moment with them? I think of the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 10 as he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. If you're not familiar with it, there's a man that's on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's assaulted, attacked, beaten up, and left for dead on the side of the road. Two religious professionals walk by him, making sure to keep their space. They see him and they flee from him, uh, nervous that they would be unclean, nervous of the different cultural implications, nervous perhaps that they too would be attacked. They do not stop. They flee from that opportunity to serve that man. And then the despised a cultural enemy, Samaritan, actually stops, cares for the man, puts him on his own animal, tends to his wounds at great cost to himself, and then pays for that man to be able to stay in an inn. At the end of this story, Jesus says, which of these three, the two religious professionals that fled, or the Samaritan, that's his cultural enemy that was faithful, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the one Jesus is speaking to says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. I wonder, does our understanding of God's heart for all people to come to salvation through Christ lead us to cross cultural barriers that are formed in our minds and in our lives and be faithful to move towards the person that's in front of us? Or are we so consumed by our cultural biases and barriers in our minds and in our lives that we flee from the people who may be around us that are in great need of the gospel? The last verse in Jonah chapter 4 has haunted me, if I'm honest with you, since I was a college student. It's God speaking to Jonah and saying, should I not pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left. God is saying to Jonah, you're mad at me because I had pity on 120,000 people that are lost apart from me. People I was faithful to send you to, but you tried to flee from. This is a direct confrontation of God against the lack of pity, of compassion in Jonah for these people. But it's also exposing for Jonah and perhaps for us. See, it was much easier for Jonah to be angry with God than it was for him to repent and align with God. The risk of the easier thing of fleeing can always be a threat to take us away from being faithfully aligned with the heart of God for the people that are around us. There's a lot of ways that could look. Here's just one. There's been this risk in Christian communities in the West particularly to primarily move inward and primarily look internally, to become more monastery than missionary, to flee what is around us rather than redemptively move into it and toward it. I completely understand the reason to do this at different times, but if this is all that we do, we risk being far more like Jonah than we are aware of or would be comfortable with, and we risk losing our alignment with the compassion of God for those who are far from him. The risk is that we become a fleeing people rather than a faithful presence. To be clear, being a fleeing people is much easier than being a faithful presence. And that's because it is often easier to look internally, to discuss and debate theology or do whatever you'd like internally than it is to actually turn outward and love your neighbor or share the gospel. 
Now, discussion about theology is massively important. Please do not hear me say that it is not. You should do it. It is important to fuel you in loving your neighbor and sharing the gospel. But, but it shouldn't be the only thing that you do. You should discuss with one another how do we love our neighbors. You should, you should plan and dream and pray and come together. But you should also go and do it. You should study the goodness of the gospel and how to share it. But you should also go in the goodness of the gospel and share it. The easy things sometimes just to go so internal. I'm asking you instead to do the, the harder thing as well. To, to let the internal be beautiful. Oh, we need community so badly, yes, to, to gather, but also to scatter. And to have that be like the breath of the Christian. We inhale and gather. We exhale and we scatter. We inhale and gather. We exhale and we scatter. We come together and we go out to the people around us. I'm asking you to do that hard thing of exhaling and moving out to the people that are around you. To be a faithful presence wherever you are. It does not mean be belligerent. It does not mean be weird. Sometimes it's They'll meet people and they're like, God's weird. And I'm like, God's not weird, but people are and we try not to be. And so, whatever. Um, but like, it, it, but you're sort of, I'm saying be faithful. Not spineless passivity where you're silent all the time. Not careless dehumanization where you're belligerent and, and pugnacious, but compassionately faithful with your presence around the people who are right in front of you. To be a person that shows mercy and moves towards the one who's right in front of you. To love your nearest neighbor as you love yourself, not the neighbor that you wish was in front of you, but the neighbor that actually is. Being a faithful presence to your nearest neighbor may cost you, and in those moments when it costs you something, you will have an opportunity to remember what it costs Jesus to go on his great missionary journey from heaven to earth, to be the perfectly faithful presence of God, to die for our sin, and to rise again from the grave. When your faithfulness to the person in front of you requires an investment of time, of talent, and of treasure, you will truly start to know what it means to love your neighbor. You, you may be tempted to flee. It may seem easier or, 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 or will be easier maybe too sometimes. I'm asking you to consider the gospel as a fuel to your faithful presence to move towards the people that are right in front of you. We go better than Jonah by resisting the easier desire to flee and instead choosing to be a faithful presence no matter where we go or who's in front of us. Resistant to responsive, fleeing to faithful, finally avoidant to attentive. Jonah comes into Nineveh with a few words. He repeats them and then he dips out. His avoidance is on display. He's doing it just to do it or so he doesn't maybe wind up in a fish again. Um, Peter looks around and is attentive to the clear work of God around him. Just consider his words when he looked at the people in the house of Cornelius and how they were responding to the gospel. He says, can anyone withhold water from baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Peter's simply being attentive to the work of God around him. Jonah goes out of compulsion because he has to. Peter goes with compassion because he can't imagine being anywhere else. He's attentive to what's going on around him. And he, he does this. Check this out. He joins in the work that God is already doing and that God was doing before he ever showed up. Peter realizes what every mission-minded Christian must, that before we get anywhere, whether I can see it or not, God was already there and he was already at work. 
This is what attentiveness does to us. It helps us to understand that God was already at work before we showed up. So we just get to get in on what he's already doing. It may be obvious. It may be subtle. It may be invisible. It may be through good things. It may be through painful things. But God was at work in the house of Cornelius before Peter showed up. And every time you've ever sat down or shared the gospel with somebody, you were late to that conversation because God was at work before you opened up your mouth. Like, any, like, before you came into this room, before I came into this room this morning, the Lord was already at work. We can either be attentive to it, or we can avoid it. Peter walks in attentively. If God's brought me here, if he's put me in front of these people, then he's at work before I even knew this place existed. So my job is not to, hear this, try to concoct or create something. It's to see where God is already at work and join in with him. That is a massive shift to thinking about life on mission, to being an inviter or a neighbor. This is what it means to be on mission with God. We just get to join in with him and his work wherever we are. He's already at work. question is, will we get in on what he's doing? It's in these moments our eyes are open to the reality that the gospel really did come to us on its way to somebody else. That God was doing the same thing in orchestrating the work of the gospel and coming to, to us before we knew him. He was already at work on our behalf. So now we get to go and be a part of that for someone else. This creates an attentiveness within us where we walk into a room and don't think, who should I stay away from or who should I avoid? But we actually come in with this question in the forefront of our mind. God, what are you doing right now? What are you doing here at this place, right here, right now? And how can I be a part of it? It's a different way to walk into a room. We go better than Jonah by practicing an attentiveness to the work of God all around us, resistant to responsive, fleeing to faithful, avoidant to attentive. Peter gives us a picture of going better than Jonah to be responsive to the word of God, to be a faithful presence, to be attentive to the work of God wherever we are. And that's just a few of the characteristics that this real compassion for those who are far from God will form in you. It's an incredible invitation to walk with conviction and courage and care to live a life marked by real compassion for those who are around you that are far from God. Which leaves us with one question. How do we cultivate that compassion? Where does that compassion come from? How does it grow in our own lives? Like I said, two words. I'll take my seat. Word number one is look. Look. We cultivate compassion the same way that it was developed in Peter. We look at Jesus. Over and over in the life of Jesus, we have these moments where the words splagnizomai appears in the original text. Twelve times across the Gospels, this term is used to describe Jesus or describe a, used by Jesus in a teaching to describe the characteristics of those who follow him. And it means to feel and be moved by compassion. Jesus' life was earmarked by compassion. And if Peter was around Jesus, it was unavoidable as he watched his teacher, his rabbi, his Lord's life, for him to not see Jesus give this compassion to those who were around him and not say, I need to shape my life after that as well. Where do you think Peter learned this responsiveness? Jesus. Where did he learn faithfulness? Jesus. Where did he learn attentiveness? Jesus. Where did he learn compassion? Jesus. And then... Peter experienced the business end of this compassion himself. See, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, Peter denied who Jesus was. He did it not once, twice, but three times, which is exactly what Jesus had told Peter would happen. The last interaction that Jesus and Peter have recorded in the text before, before Jesus is brought 
to a cross, before he goes to a cross, he's hung there to die for our sin, for Peter's sin. They make eye contact after Jesus has, after they both hear the rooster crow, after Peter has denied him three times. The text goes on to say that Jeter goes, that Peter, Jeter, what? That Peter goes away and that he cries bitterly. Just imagine that you're Peter. The last thing you did before the guy that you called the Christ died was deny him three times. The Gospel of John, however, lets us know that the story does not end there. It tells a story that occurs after the resurrection of Jesus, that as the disciples were fishing, Peter's leading this crew on the boat, and they look to the shore, and they see Jesus there. And so Peter, in this incredible moment, throws his clothes on, jumps into the water, and swims to shore. He's like, I'm gonna, I've got to get back to Jesus. I've got to get to him. If there's any hope for me at all, it's going to be around that fire with Jesus. So they sit, they all have breakfast together, and then Jesus pulls off and has this conversation with Peter. Three times Jesus asks Peter if he loves him. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Each time he says, I love you. Yes, I love you. Lord, you know that I love you. The three betrayals of uh, the three betraying denials of Peter are met with three confessions of love drawn out by Jesus. And at the end of each of those, Jesus looks at Peter and says, then feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. I'm not done with you. It is a compassionate restoring of Peter, both to relationship and responsibility as it relates to the mission of God that Jesus had for him. Peter, who had denied him, Peter, who'd lied about knowing him, Jesus compassionately restores him in his love. Peter is compassionate towards others because he himself has experienced the compassion of Christ to himself firsthand, which is the reality for every Christian in this room. I know I sound like a broken record, and I know I say this a lot, but like, do you remember your story? Do you remember when you experienced the compassion of Christ towards you for the first time? That moment when he looked on you with compassion. When he saw you before you even trusted in him as Savior. You saw him and you knew him. And in that moment you were like, oh, that's who you are. That's what you're like. That's your compassion towards me. That you'd want anything to do with me at all. If you've received the gospel, you've experienced the compassion of Christ. So look at him. Cultivate this compassion in ourselves by looking at Jesus being compassionate towards others and looking back at the way that he's been compassionate towards us. We look and we practice. We've said it many times from this stage that when you know who you are, you know what to do. And when you remember the compassion that Jesus has showed you, the logical result of that compassion towards you is for compassion to go through you to those who are around you. For, for you to get to be responsive to the Word of God, to be faithful where you are, to be attentive to the work of God, and get in on it as you remember the compassion to you, the only logical thing is that you'd show compassion through yourself and through your life. There's three really practical ways that you could do something with that compassion, three really practical things you could do. First, you could use that invitation card that we gave you. About 63% of people in a survey that was done said that if a good friend invited them to come to church, they were very likely, that was their metric on the survey, they were very likely to say yes. So use that invite card. If someone you've invited once, think about inviting them again. I got invited to church so many times before I finally came. I'm really glad that DJ was persistent with me. An easy next step for you, the simplest next step for you, may be to just make an invitation. 
Second practice maybe for you could be to, to share the gospel. If you want a kind of simple way to get to that conversation, you could use what we teach our students at Salt Company and our leaders, which is their story, your story, the story. Like actually be curious about them. Start to know their story, like learn their story. Don't do it to get somewhere. Do it because you're actually being compassionate and caring for that person that's in front of you. And then at some point in that, say, hey, could I tell you a little bit of my story? And in telling you like their story, you say, hey, can I tell you a little about Jesus who's actually shaped and changed my story? And then you ask them this question, what's stopping you from trusting Jesus as your savior? And then you shut up and you listen to them. (laughs) We like to talk at that point a whole lot and don't actually give anybody room to say anything in response. So we ask them that question and we let them answer it. It could be nothing. It could be something. In any case, you're able to continue that conversation with them. Invite, share. Or maybe you need to, to teach someone how to do it. By the way, the person that teaches someone how to do it is someone that's already doing these things. Don't think you can buy step, bypass those two and just teach people. You need to go invite and you need to go share. But maybe you are doing those things so frequently and you've got people around you that are seeing it that you actually need to pull a young man, a young woman aside and say, hey, let me actually teach you how to do this. Let me teach you how to be an inviter. Let me teach you how to share the gospel. These are just three simple practices. And here's what happens. When you know who you are, you know what to do. And when you do what you know, you actually remember who you are. And you can, you can go ahead and, and come on up. Each time that you go and invite that you share the gospel, that you teach someone how to do it. It's a moment for you to remember the compassion of Jesus towards you through the gospel. You remember that you aren't doing this out of some external compulsion, which would be exhausting. This, by the way, is why people look at sharing the gospel and look at mission as exhausting, because they forget sometimes why they're doing it. That it actually required Christ to do something first before I was ever able to invite or share or teach someone how to. Let me make this even more clear. Please do not do these things because I'm asking you to. Do it because you look at Jesus and you see his compassion towards you. And like Peter, it just makes sense for you to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus wherever you are. And wherever you are, as you invite, you remember that you were first invited by Jesus to come to himself. And wherever you are, when you share the gospel, you remember that it's because the Savior has come for you to have a gospel to share. When you are discipling someone so that more people can hear the good news of the gospel that came to you, you just cannot wait for that good news to get to somebody else. And don't do it because someone up here on a stage is asking you to. Look at Jesus. Let it come through the reality of the compassion that he's shown towards you for you to be compassionate to those who are far from him. As an inviter, a sharer of the gospel, and a discipler of those around you. There's been a couple questions that have just gone through my mind. Um, I'll say these and, and close. Like, I just wonder what God could do if he content through us if we continue to grow in our compassion for those who are far from him. Like what God could do through a church that was committed to being compassionate to the people that are far from him in our city. How we could have an impact far beyond our number. We could be, as John Tyson says, a, a, a redemptive minority in our city. Place where the gospels heard and felt, where conviction, courage, and care were simply in the air. A people who were responsive to his word, not resistant, faithful in our presence, not fleeing. 
attentive to the work of, that he's already doing all around us and just committed and curious and excited to get in on it. I've wondered who's on the other side of your yes to being compassionate. I wonder what God could do if we went better than Jonah. Let me invite you to just take a moment for focus and concentration. If you'd close your eyes and bow your heads just to contemplate and perhaps respond in some way. I just want to speak to two groups of people that are here. Group number one, um, if you're not a Christian, I just want to bring you back to that first word that I said, which was to look. Just to look at Jesus to consider the reality that God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting and eternal life. That what Jesus offers you is eternal life. That as you trust in him as Lord and Savior, by grace you will be saved. So shamelessly my hope for you is that as you stare at Jesus, you would see the compassionate work that he has done through his perfect life that we could never live, through the death that he died on the cross for the forgiveness of the sins of all who would come to him and the resurrection from the grave so that we who trust in Jesus would have the assurance that as surely as Jesus lives is as sure as we will live with him forever. That you would look at him, you repent of your sin, you lay down everything that separates you from him and you trust in him as your savior. Second group of people, you follow Jesus, but you're tired. You've been hearing me talk about mission. You've been hearing me talk about all these things this entire time. You're looking up and you're like, you're young, you're energetic, you're passionate. And I want you to know how empathetic I am to you in this moment and your exhaustion. I want to encourage you to look again to Jesus, to be so consumed with his wonderful face that the things of this earth, the exhaustion that you feel, the things that weigh you down will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace that you would just turn your eyes to him.